Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would become more and more citizens of your kingdom that love you well and love our neighbors well. Teach us through the power of the Holy Spirit that we would do this to your glory. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Most of you have probably some familiarity with the infamous SATs that everybody has to take before they go to college to kind of help show how well they do on these different types of questions. But in 1982, there was a question that every single person got wrong because the right answer wasn't actually an option on the exam. It was a poorly thought out question that, that kind of, if, if, if you're interested, just Google 1982 essay question and there's a great article on Scientific America about how come people, everybody got this wrong, but that's neither here nor there. It was just poorly thought out and it ended up tripping up people. When I, when I teach, I like to ensure people that there are no, question, no dumb questions. And that's because when you're teaching, usually people come to you with good faith questions. And when their questions are made in good faith, usually they're good. They might be very simplistic. They might be very easy to answer. But they're not meant to trip me up where this question did trip people up in 1982. Because of this, good faith questions are rarely bad questions. However, this morning we see a question from the Sadducees that is not made in good faith. The goal isn't to learn something. The goal isn't to find out something about Jesus. The only goal of this question is to try and trip him up. And as we read this question, it just becomes more and more and more absurd. Admittedly, there's one account from Tobit 3 in the Apocrypha where a woman was married seven times, and then her husband's just kept dying. But this is clearly the exception to the rule. If we had a friend who was married seven times, we'd start to wonder if, is she like slipping them something? Is she, you know, or does she make really bad choices? This isn't a normal thing, just across the board. Although it does start to hit on a pastoral question that Jesus doesn't actually give us a great answer to. That pastoral question is what happens with those people that remarry when it gets to eternity? Because we know that people die, people get divorced. But what does this all mean for eternity? But like I said, this is not what Jesus aims to answer when he starts to answer this ridiculous question from the Sadducees. Instead, Jesus' answer is in part a redirect to get them to think more accurately about the eternity, about heaven, about the kingdom of God, and in part a rebuke towards the Sadducees. Now, in order to understand this, we need to understand who the Sadducees were, right? Because we just read that they don't believe in the resurrection. But why they don't believe in the resurrection is because they only held the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of, of the Bible the, as authoritative. But they weren't necessarily like a theological school where the Pharisees had different theological schools of thinking and the scribes had different theological schools of thinking. 
They, they were more a social group, and that would be the upper echelons of Jewish society. They're more devout, most certainly, than Christmas and Easter Christians, but they might have been comparable to the type that, that like, pick and choose what texts they want to take seriously so they don't have to wrestle with uncomfortable texts. And then Jesus responds to them quite harshly. Jesus responds that they neither know Scripture nor the power of God. To show this, though, Jesus then appeals not to the Psalms or the prophets, but to the Pentateuch, Exodus 3 to be exact, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus uses this burning bush incident to say, show that God is the God of the living. Jesus uses it to show that God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what God is driving at here in his statement to, to Moses is a little more complex and interesting than, than right immediately meets the eye. What he's saying is he's a God that does not forget his people. By stating, I am, God makes it clear that his promise that he made to Abraham, that he made to Isaac, and that he made to Jacob has not been forgotten, and he has not forgotten Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the grave. In other words, it's not that he uses the present tense, but that he remembers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob And therefore, God is the God of the living. But then Jesus makes a second point. The resurrection isn't about human potential, but about the power of God. You do not have the power to restore yourself to life. If you're really into science fiction, I'm sorry to be the one that breaks that to you, but you do not have the power to restore yourself to life. This is why the modern sees Jesus' resurrection as so absurd. Because they do not know the power of God. Because it is through God alone that one can be made alive. Yes, we know roughly how we stay alive. The heart pumps blood through our body and goes through the lungs and the lungs breathe in and out. And if any of those things stop, you stop. But the reality is, is that God breathes life into each and every human being, whether they know it or not. And he also breathes life, new life, into those who he has called his own. It is by the power of God that you are alive physically and spiritually. But then we get to the statement in verse 25. And it drives us to the second part of our passage today. In that, Jesus states to them, For when they rise from the dead, they neither are given in marriage, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. We often get lost in our idea of what the kingdom of God should be like. That is, we get lost in the idea of what eternity with God will be like. We want it to be just like here. We want to keep on living our lives. We want to be able to watch TV or go golfing or to get drinks with our buddies. 
But God, Jesus is pointing to the fact that the kingdom of God is so much more than that. The kingdom of heaven <clears throat> makes it clear that you exist for something more. Not just in eternity, but here and in eternity. And now there's this scribe that overhears this conversation. And he wants to ask him his own question. One of the first things that we notice about this scribe's question is where these, these Sadducees just kind of go on and on, and you can kind of tell they're up to something no good. The scribe just succinctly asks his question. Perhaps the scribe has heard Jesus teaching already or just has seen him put the Sadducees down this morning, and he found that kind of fun and interesting and wanted to see, wanted his help with a question that he's wrestling with. And we know that this is an earnest question. Because it's probably a question that the scribes had debated for years and years and years. Because you see, the scribes calculated that there were 613 commandments in the covenant. 613 commandments in the covenant of Israel. And so this question of priority would have been virtually unavoidable. And so the scribe asks the natural question that he's probably debated with his friends and fellow scribes. He says, which of these commandments, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus first answers with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is significant for a few reasons. First and foremost, the Shema, or here, plays a role in catechism for the Jewish people. Even to this day, it's something that they remember, recite, and refer back to time and time again. <clears throat> and so it's a significant statement because it's something that reminds them of this important truth, of this important call upon their life. Perhaps the biggest significance is, that, is where Moses spells it out in the covenant that God made with Israel. It is the first commandment that he gives to them, the first commandment that he recites to them, and the first commandment that he writes down in Deuteronomy as he spells out the covenant with his people. But it's also significant because it clarifies how we are supposed to live and how we are supposed to love. We're called not just to love God with pieces of ourselves. We're not called to hold back parts of ourselves, but to love us, love him with every single part of our being. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. <clears throat> if you pause and think about this for a minute, is there any other part of you that can't be, uh, can't be brought in to those four pieces of life? What God is getting at in Deuteronomy 6.5, where this is drawn from, is that you belong to God. Every ounce of your being is created to love him. And Jesus continues, drawing from Leviticus 19.18 of all places. 
This, of course, was a less well-established answer and probably a part that they would debate far more rigorously than the first part of his answer. But it has become a rule of life for the Christian. Even when we read the Decalogue, which we do at the beginning of each month, where we see the whole of the law sort of spelled out in that Decalogue passage, we still read this passage every month, every, every week, when we come to gather at the Lord's table. Because we use it as catechism to understand the Decalogue. We use it as a reminder of the call upon our life. Mark 12, 29 through 31 is a call to a new way of life for the Christian. But what is Jesus calling us to? What is this love that he speaks of? Perhaps John 15, 13 spells it out, out most perfectly for us. Jesus says to his disciples, Greater love hath no one than he than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Of course, what he's talking about there is his coming crucifixion. This is demonstrated most perfectly on the cross. It is an act of loving obedience to the Father, as well as an act of love towards his people, by dying the death that we deserve. This is what we remember when we come to the Lord's table, when we partake in Holy Communion. We remember that God loved us on the cross, that Jesus died where we should have died. And we experience that love in his coming down, as well as in loving one another when we come together at the Lord's table. To love, in other words, is to put yourself aside, to give up your whole being to God, and to not put yourself before your neighbor. And of course, the next logical question is, well, who is my neighbor? Of course, he has a, a parable about that, but we don't need to venture there. We just need to understand what this is drawn from. The neighbor is not just the person that lives in the house next to you. But it starts as simply as, the spout, as your spouse in your bed next to you, your children in your house. It starts as, yes, those people in your neighborhood, but it's also your coworker, the person that you see at the gym. The reality is your neighbor are the people whom you interact with day in and day out. In fact, Leviticus 19.18 ends this entire section of various commandments that includes caring for the sojourner, not swearing falsely, in other words, not bearing false witness, not hating your brother, not seeking injustice in courts or slandering people. Neighbor is an expansive term here. But for most of us, we realize we need God's help simply to care for and love for those people we interact with the most. Have you ever had one of those conversations where you were enjoying it so much and your per the person you're talking to has a similar interest and you get really, really excited and start talking and you agree more and more? That's really what's happening here. Right? The scribe isn't like, A plus Jesus, good job answering that. The scribe isn't even testing Jesus. 
He's actually seeking to have a conversation with Jesus. And when Jesus finishes, and he says, you are right in our translation, really what he's saying is something along the lines of, well said, or hear, hear, if you like that culture. The scribe then captures in his response to Jesus something that so few did, both then and now. It is the heart. It is the heart that matters. Throughout the Old Testament, it points back to this reality, reality that the law is there to change people's hearts. Leviticus 26, Moses speaks of an uncircumcised heart that becomes humble. In other words, a heart that becomes changed and desires to make amends for their iniquities or their failings. Deuteronomy 10 picks up on this language of circumcising the heart. In other words, in that context, leaving behind stubbornness and obstinance for the love of the Lord. Psalm 51, David begs God after his sin with Bathsheba that he would be given a clean heart. The theme of new heart comes up, especially in Ezekiel, but most poignantly in that passage of Ezekiel 11, 19, where God promises that he will give Israel a new heart and a new spirit, removing the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. Our sin makes our heart turn to stone. <clears throat> they do not beat. They do not love as we are called to love. But God desires to give each and every one of you new hearts and to renew that heart week in and week out. And this is what he has done in Christ. He has circumcised your heart. He has replaced your heart with a heart of flesh that can love, that can love your spouse well, that can love your children well, that can love the people in your neighborhood well, that can love the bank teller and the fellow gym goer, the sojourner, and your brother, that can love each and every one of them in a self-giving manner. But more importantly, he gives you this new heart, gives you this new heart that learns to give up yourself in love to God. Jesus ends in verse 34, and he tells the scribe, you are are not far from the kingdom of God. When Jesus makes you his own, he replaces your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And in that action, you become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God. And you are made truly, truly alive. When you are in Christ, you are being molded by the power of the Holy Spirit into someone who is truly alive for the glory of God, that you may learn to love God fully and that you may love your neighbors well. The reality is that your salvation is not your own. You benefit from it, certainly, but your salvation was ordained by God that you may be alive to God, to his glory, that this life would be a life of loving him with your whole being and loving you well and loving your neighbor well
So that when you finally one day arrive in heaven, you will finally fully know the true fellowship that we desire with others. And more importantly, you will enjoy fellowship with God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.